good. Yes, good evening, everyone. Um, so I think I speak on behalf of many people to say thank you very much for, for the worship team and, and then just for everyone working in the background, I think, in, in a church like this, uh, a small group, but there are still many people who arrive very early and, and leave very late. And I think just want to recognize at least all the effort that is put in there. That's a thankless job. So thanks, thanks very much for everyone in, in that regard. Um, then maybe just as a <laughs> um, one way to start this would be um, to to say that uh, in dialogue, if you if you disagree with me or, or any speaker, please feel free to to say so. Um, it is dialogue, um, and so questions are welcome. We have to be in a community where we are willing to disagree with one another, um, but hopefully in a in a good and constructive way. Um, so don't come calling me afterwards and say you disagree. You know this is this is where we we do it. Um, I hope not to say anything too controversial. Uh, <laughs> just yeah, so just to say that. Okay. Um, so I'd like us to close our eyes and let's let's pray together as we as we start. Um, uh, Lord God, you're a gracious God. You're a loving God. We ask that your kingdom come for this country um, and also for this community. We ask that you give us the daily bread that each one of us need, but also um, the daily bread we need as a country. Um, we need to ask your forgiveness in South Africa for so many things. Um, and then we also ask for your protection from evil. Amen. Our scripture reading for today um, is obviously very, very um, well known. So it's the Exodus 20, so you can either read on the screen or... Um, um, in your own Bible, wherever you want. So let's read together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that your Lord God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet uh, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, and this is the word of the Lord. Now, as a student, I, I used to attend a Dutch Reformed church, and at the start of every service, they used to read these, these Ten Commandments as part of the confession of sin um, within, the, within the liturgy. And I can say that, that to this day, I, I'm not always sure how I feel about that. Um, so maybe I can ask you, what emotions do you feel when, when you read the Ten Commandments? Um, do you feel any of the following to say, 
not again, you know, please, can't we do some New Testament stuff? This is, you know, we know this stuff. Um, but do you feel, you know, can say, I feel guilt and remorse. I really don't want to be reminded of my brokenness. Or maybe you can say, I feel joy and peace. These commandments define who I am in Christ. I, I rejoice in them. So believe it or not, I would like to share tonight with you um, the comfort I find in this, these Ten Commandments. Um, I want to express the joy and peace I find in them. And, and I hope to give you some context with which in you can have the same freedom in the relationship with God as it does for me, as I find these commandments define who I am in Christ. Um, so that's at least the, the, the slant I want to give this, um, these Ten Commandments tonight. And what we'll do is we'll consider three aspects. So first off, we'll look at when and why the Ten Commandments were given, what is then the hope in the Ten Commandments, and what do these Ten Commandments reveal about God and then about us. So starting off with the when and why. So just with, um, with regards to when. I guess most of you have seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, um, which I think is... Um, yeah, uh, definitely one of my favorite animation movies. Um, that last scene, the splitting of the sea, is still one of my favorite. It's just amazing cinematography, how they draw that whale with the lightning. It's, I hear it took three years just to sketch that splitting of the sea um, scene. It's, it's truly remarkable. So we see the Israelites going through this. They go into the desert. They rejoice over the victory over the Egyptians. Um, and then, you know, next scene, we see Moses coming down the mountain and, and, you know, giving them the Ten Commandments. But, but this is not really what happened. Um, so the, they did not receive the laws directly after going through the Red Sea. There's so much more that happened. Um, so even before they get to Mount Sinai, there are at least five um, big things um, which we'll quickly cover. So after crossing the Sea of Reeds, the Israelites head into the desert, and what happens first? You run out of water. So they ask for water. So they do find water, and this water is bitter. So they, they can't really drink it. And they complain against Moses, and, and um, they grumble, saying, Moses, give us water. Moses asks God to intervene, and he says, okay, take a stick, throw it in the water, um, and then the water turns sweet, and so the Israelites have water. Problem solved. Okay, so but what next? What follows water? Food. So soon the Israelites run out of food, and again they start crumbling. But this time they just grumble a little bit on the next level. Their complaint against Moses is that it would have been better for them to stay in Egypt, where they could have their fill on meat and bread. So the, Moses only brought them out into the wilderness to kill them. So that is, that is the level at the, what, what they are now. Um, but God is gracious again, and he provides them with manna, with the bread from heaven in the morning and in the evening quail. So even though they, they, they make this quite astounding um, claim. He does, however, add, in this case, a requirement. Well, at least two requirements. The first requirement is that what you collect for the day is enough for the, for the day. Don't try and keep for the next day. And then on the sixth day, gather for two days so that you don't have to go out on the seventh day. The seventh day, there will not be bread. You can trust that what you collect on the sixth day is enough. So just as a side note, this should immediately remind you of two things. Firstly, if we think of daily bread, that is the Lord's Prayer, right? And if we think of resting on the seventh day, that is the fourth commandment, 
Okay, so there's already hints of these things going on here. But anyway, so not looking at that, um, we can just ask, do the Israelites listen to God in this case? Um, no. So they try and keep for the next day, and they um, also still go out to look for food on the seventh day. They do not trust that God will provide, or that his provision will be enough. The Israelites then move to Rephidim, so they, they're moving away to a new place, um, and it's still on their way into Mount Sinai. And again, they find that they've got no water. Um, and this time, the grumbling actually, you know, is still level up. Um, it says that they quarreled with Moses. So that language of quarrel is similar to a court case or court scene. Um, so in effect, you can say that they are suing God and Moses for not giving them water. And their claim is that they were, still, they were led into the desert to be killed. The slogan to their campaign against Moses is, is the Lord among us or not? And that's directly from Exodus 17.7. That is what, what, what they say. So after all that has happened, after all the miracles, um, they still don't trust that God is for them. And so we've got this very bizarre court scene where God appears as a defendant on a rock in front of the elders and in front of the people. And Moses is then ordered to strike this rock on which God stands. And in effect, God is then sort of taking the punishment um, of this unfair um, court scene, and from that rock then flows living water. So quite a bizarre um, scene, and still, you know, God provides from his mercy for this, this people that are continuously um, quarreling with him. So as you read then um, the narrative, there's a um, slight turn. So first off, we have a fight against the Amalekites. So this time, the Israelites actually have to engage in battle. Previously, against the Egyptians, God fought um, for, and, and, um, for the Israelites. But, you know, it's again clear in this narrative, or in this case, that God is giving the victory. Then next, Moses is reunited with his family, um, and we see also, you know, he, um, his father-in-law, who sees what all that is happening, tells Moses, listen, you can't do everything for everyone all the time. You need to organize. And so they've got this first sort of business seminar on how to organize people. Um, and then finally, they arrive at Mount Sinai, and they're asked to prepare for a meeting with the Lord. So they do that, they claim themselves, they prepare, they then go to the foot of the mountain, and then God descends on this mountain and he gives them these t ten words or these ten commandments. So this is all that has happened up to that point um, where, they, where they do receive this. And we can ask ourselves if... If we were Israelites witnessing this, how would we feel about all of this? How would we react? So you saw the wonders in Egypt. You experienced God saving you um, from the Egyptian army. Um, you saw the water and the bread. Would you trust him when it really became personal? Would you know that he is there for you when water and food ran out? And when he does come through for you, will you actually trust him then for the next event? Or would it be again for you the same thing of, is the Lord among, among us or not? And I think, yeah, so for me this was also a difficult question. Do I trust God that when all my current circumstances to indicate otherwise, do I trust that he's with me? Philip Yancey says, faith is trusting in advance what only makes sense in reverse. Um, do I trust God? 
So covering the, the when scenario, we come now to why. And, and here, if you would allow me to be a bit irreverent, we can say, we can question God's logic. Um, because the Israelites don't really have a good track record thus far in trusting him. They don't trust him with the food. They don't trust him with the water. Um, why on earth would he then give them these commandments? Um, and why would he want to be in relationship and partnership with the Israelites? They've shown that they're not trustworthy. Um, you could say that, you know, in a farcical scene that God's is heaven, his head is in hands, and, you know, he thinks, what a failure of a people. What can I do with them? I need to do something to get these people into shape. And he gets a group of angels together and say, all right, let's, let's see, what can we do? And, and, you know, one angel says, right, why, why don't we get them commandments and laws to, to guide them? And so, you know, they've got a committee, they draw up 50 laws, but 50 laws, there's too much stone for Moses to carry. So they send it to subcommittee, it's summarized into 10 laws. Okay, Moses, here you go. Here are 10 laws, 10 guidelines, 10 rules for you as a people to, you know, get yourself into shape, um, you know, to stop you from failing. So I guess that's one, you know, superficial way of looking at it. The other way, or another question would be, why did God not give the commandments to Moses before he led the Israelites out of Egypt? If, if it's beforehand, then at least the Israelites would know what they're signing up for. They would know, okay, these are requirements. Am I willing to meet these requirements to, to, to serve this God who says he's going to save me? I want to show you that I think the law is, is far more profound than these two very slightly ludicrous um, interpretations. So this answer to this why question um, is very important. It's, it's critical that you understand this, at least for this talk, if you understand, want to understand what I'm trying to say, the next part is very, very important. So I can start this answer to why by asking the following question. How do the Ten Commandments start? What would anyone say? How did the Ten Commandments start? It starts with the condition, not with the statement. It starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is the first part. And why is that significant? It's significant because in this statement, God defines the nation as a people who he saved. They are first saved and then given a description of who they are to be in a relationship and partnership with him. So they, their identity is then already established as a people loved and saved by God. It's not that they first need to obey so that they can be saved. They are saved and then told what this will mean. Their saving is not dependent on the commandments as the commandments are only given after they are saved. This command, these commandments are not a condition. So maybe as a very simple example, so I have a, I have a two, two and a half year old son and an 11 month old daughter, so our household is pretty busy, and I've made the commandment, you shall not hit your younger sister. And this is firstly to protect my, my daughter, um, but also um, this is the type of person I want my son to become, to take care of, my sister, of his sister. When my son disobeys, he's not less my son than before. You know, it's not as if that level of sonness has dropped every time he hits his sister, which happened again a few times today. Um, it's just that there's this rule, I'm trying to guide him into becoming a certain type of person. Okay. 
So I can make this personal. I can ask you, how do you see your relationship with God? Do you first need to obey before you feel you can approach him? Is how you draw near to God conditional on your behavior? If you're like me, um, maybe, maybe you are, I generally feel I'm only allowed to pray if I have a regular quiet time, or I'm only allowed to feel okay about my relationship with him if I do regular spiritual things. And I mean, these, these are good things to do, and, I, and God wants me to do these things. But if I do these things only to feel okay about my relationship, then, then I'm to be pitied. Um, he wants me to do the right stuff, but not as a requirement for his love. So just to summarize, the start of the commandments define who the Israelites are, and the commandments then show them what this will mean what character they should have as the people of God, what image they should reflect as his people. These commandments should be a true description of them. Now, if you listen to the Bible Project, um, which I highly recommend, they mention that the revelation of these Ten Commandments is very similar to a marriage ceremony. So you've got the bride and bridegroom meeting, and they're exchanging these vows as a definition of the relationship between them. And here at Mount Sinai, God meets with his people and he describes their marriage relationship. So I would like to read to you from Ezekiel 16, where we see scenes of, of a marriage. Um, but I can't really read that passage because we are a family church and that's sort of, sort of one of the R-rated pieces of scripture. Uh, now the passage starts where God finds an unwanted baby girl tossed in the field and, and left for dead. And he then takes in this girl and he cares for her. Um, but when the child becomes a, and when the child becomes an adult, God actually enters in a, in a marriage relationship with her. He enters into a covenant with her, and then he takes very good care of her. So I hope you can sort of see the parallel with the Israelites. Um, but what happens soon after the marriage? She abandons him. She finds other lovers. She lives promiscuously and without shame. Um, she spurns God's love. And this is then exactly the story that we see in the Old Testament with the Israelites. At no point were they able to maintain their relationship with God. They break the covenant with God time and time again. We have the history books which record this failure. We have the poets who sing about the failure, and we've got the prophets weeping about this failure. There are people with failure written all over them. And I guess this is then where the part of the hope comes in. Is there any hope for us if the people of Israel are not able to remain faithful to this covenant? What would then be the hope for us? So let's turn to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, and this is probably, at least for me, two of the darkest pieces of scripture. And we turn there to find good news. So God says the following, Jeremiah 31 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. 
So this is the new covenant I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So in Ezekiel, something very similar. Um, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. This new covenant of God is not a rewriting of the law to make it easier for us. It is the relocation of the law. The laws which describe who we are to be as his people are no longer written in tablets of stone. These laws are now written on our hearts. It is by his spirit that he gives us a new heart to cause us to walk in the statues and obey these rules. These commandments, which I regard as a reflection of the image that we lost, will now be placed on our hearts. We will once again have the image, the character that we lost. How is this possible? It's only possible through the redemptive work of Christ. We read in Romans, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's only through Christ that we can live in covenant with God. It is only through him that the requirements of the law can be met. So as I said in Colossians 1, it is Christ in you which is your hope hope of glory. It is Christ living in you which means that you are now a new creation. It is Christ in you who has given you a new heart which means that the requirements of the Ten Commandments are now met. It is Christ in you which means that these statements are now written in your heart and that through him these statements are true of you. In 2 Corinthians it says, step by step, Jesus Christ is transforming us into his likeness, into his character. Do you know this joy of being a new creation in Christ? Do you know the peace that God is, that God works in you to transform him, to transform you into his likeness? Do you know that he works in you to walk in his statues and be careful to obey his rules? So finally, we now come to the Ten Commandments and just reflect on these commandments individually. So first off, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So in this commandment that God's before, that before can also be, um, say, replaced with in front of, you shall have no other gods in front of me. Um, So it it says, you know, there should be no gods in front of of Yahweh. And this statement does not mean that God should be the first in the line of many gods, like Zeus is the first god in the Greek pantheon of, of gods. So for me, if this is now written on my heart, It means that he is the only one who can give me identity as his child. Anything else that tries to give me an identity would be false. I can only find who I am in him. He is the one who saved me. The next commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now definitely all of us, we do have idols in our lives, and we often create them as a substitute for God so that we can have something which we can have control over. And this is exactly what we see with the Israelites. So um, at some point they create the golden calf. So this is sort of after Moses goes up to speak to the Lord. The Israelites down here, they create a golden calf and they actually call it Yahweh. They're trying to make a God which they have some control over as a substitute. So I just need, need some light. Okay, but, but regarding the, um, the golden calf, there will be more on that next week. Maybe I can just say that a good book to read on, on uh, idols would be by Timothy Keller on counterfeit gods. And in this he mentions that if you want to identify the idol in your life, you look at something that when this thing is taken away, your life falls to pieces. Um, it is not just something that you mourn when it's taken away. This is something that when it's gone, uh, you can't continue living. And I have to reflect on this quite, um, or I've tried to reflect on this in my life. And I guess there are two things for me personally, it would be my career and the good opinion people have of me. Um, so what people think of me and, and my status, I think is one of the idols for me personally I have to reject, and it will look different, different for you. Um, so in the morning I mentioned this and told people, don't come tell me if the sermon was good, you know, because I want people to think well of me. It's, you know, it just feeds my idol. And obviously everyone afterwards come to tell me it was good. Um, but I also told them, don't come and tell me if it's bad. Um, I don't want that either. Uh, if this is now written on my heart, I can know that no idol will ever dominate me. And I find that there's victory always in Christ. The third one, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who lifts up his name in vain. So that word take, to take the name of the Lord in vain, take, is from the Hebrew word nasar, which means to lift up. And the idiom to lift up the name in the ancient world would have been similar to taking an oath in a court of law. So the pro prohibition here is not simply not to misuse the Lord's name, but it's rather not to lie under or oath in the name of the Lord. And what I make of this is that I should not be a false representative of God. So if I carry or bear or lift up the name of the Lord in vain, it would be to willfully distort who God is to other people. It is to lie to others about who he is. However, if this is now written on my heart, I can say that I can trust that his light can still shine through me to other people, that he will guide me on the right path um, for his name's sake. We then come to the Sabbath law. So I'm not going to read it all the way through. Um, I'm just going to read the following. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Seven items. Why is this significant? Because this encompasses a complete life. This is everything. 
And, and the idea is, is that there should be complete rest within God. God created man on the sixth day. What did man do then on his first day? It was a day off. Okay, it was a holiday. Um, and, and again, for, for me, I, I find that the comfort in that is that I know God completed the work. He, there's, there's truly complete rest in him. And of all the commandments, I think I'm most prone to break this one because generally, if you know me, you will know I'm burnt out at least two or three times a year from overworking. And it's just because I fail to rest in the utter sufficiency of God. I fail to trust that God will provide as he provided for the Israelites. Um, we are reminded in Philippians that the good work he starts in us, he will bring to completion. He's the author and finisher of our faith. If this is now written on our hearts, we know we can find rest in him. The fifth one, honor your, mo- your father and your mother. Now, I have to then, okay, sorry, I see the slideshow is up and running. Okay, this no longer works. All right, so fifth one, honor your mother and father. And if I consider the relationship between God, the father, and the son, I see that, you know, sorry, God, the father, and God, the son, if I consider that relationship, the father honors the son as the son honors the father. There's this circular relationship. And looking at that, it means that if we look at this, a parent has to be an example to the child of someone to honor, just as the child then has to, um, to honor the parents. So this law cuts both ways, both to parents and to children. And I say this because I know that um, there are parents who abuse their children and there are children who abuse their parents. There are many of us who don't necessarily have good relationships which makes this always a very, you know, a, a tricky one. And I, I don't really have answers for that. How do you honor parents who, who <coughs> sorry, how do you honor parents who abuse you or children who um, don't listen uh, or don't accept your love? And, and all I can pray for is that God will guide you in understanding what it means to love them as he has loved us. That's, that's about as far as I can go on that. Number six and seven, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Um, We can't really discuss these commandments. He said there, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And in short, um, a heart full of anger is already guilty of murder. And a heart full of lust is already guilty of adultery. He cuts right down to the heart of the matter, just about the actions. If this is now written on my heart, I know I can find comfort in the fact that there is victory over my anger just as there's victory over inordinate sexual desire. Number eight, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What would Jesus say about these commandments? Because he um, does, not, does not necessarily address them as directly as he did you know, murder and adultery. And if I can venture an answer, I would have to guess Uh, Do not be anxious about your possessions. Do not be anxious about what you will eat and drink. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. So secondly, if you lie about your neighbor, if you bear false witness, you seek to do them harm in some way. But God said, love your enemies as you do yourself. 
So number 10, you shall not covet. And again, we see a list of seven items. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Seven items. So again, this is supposed to be a complete list to compass everything in life. So what happens if I covet something? So Paul somewhere says covetousness, which is idolatry. So if I covet something, I'm making an idol of, out of this thing. It is something that I want that will define me. Without this thing, I am not complete. And the contrast to this, for me, is to have gratitude and enjoyment of something. Um, so obviously, we can ask for God's provision, but I do think there's a complete gratitude and enjoyment to just in, to, with regards to the things that, that we do have and what it gives us. But it also means that I can be truly happy for the people around me when I see things, that they have good things. I don't have to be um, subject to jealousy or, or the Sorry, I am recovering from a cold, so my voice is at this point giving in. Um, which is good, because we're now at the conclusion. <laughs> so in conclusion, um, the law first defines the people of Israel as saved by God. Um, the laws then proceed to describe who they are to be as a people saved by him. It shows them who they are to become as his people. We know that neither we or Israel can, can do this out of our own strength. God then comes and makes a new covenant in Christ so that these, such that those who put their faith in him will receive a new heart, that by his spirit these laws are now written on our hearts. Very important, I'm not saying that any of us are perfect. Um, as we all know, it's a constant struggle. We do not reflect his image in any way um, uh, as, as good as we should. We fail so many times in so many aspects of these laws. However, we can trust that the God who started the work, could the good work in us will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6. It is he who gives us a heart of flesh. He who writes these laws on our hearts. It is he who works in us to transform us step by step into his character. 2 Corinthians 3. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with the comfort that God is working, um, that works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in closing, I'd like to read from Ephesians. Um, this will be the closing prayer and then also a blessing from the book of Jude. So we can pray together. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.